0: All right, welcome back to another episode. So hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we're going to introduce you to an author you might not have heard of, but you should have. We've got Mr. William Allen Webb on deck. So how are you doing today, sir?
1: I'm doing Awesome, living the dream.
0: Can't ask for more. Can you tell the, the listeners and viewers a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, sure. Um, wow. <laughs> that's a that's a tall order. Uh, I live in West Tennessee with my wife and eight dogs. Um, we we are unfortunately can't turn down a rescue when we see one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I uh, majored in creative writing in college. And I've always wanted to be a, uh, I've always been a writer. Uh, I don't think you want to be a writer. You either are or you're not. Um, and, and I actually found a story that I wrote. The, it's, it's a picture story, but it had a few words to it from um, first grade when I was five. Nice. And uh, I'm just a pretty average Southern boy who has a lot of stories that he would like to tell. And. I've gotten the chance to tell them.
0: Can't ask for more than that. So um, the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we first found them. And so I actually found uh, William through the story bundle we're both in, which we'll talk about at the end of the interview. But after looking at the glorious cover, which you'll see in a little bit, I'm definitely going to have to go buy the audiobooks because that looks amazing. So now, sir, this is the question that decides whether you get to stay or not. So the religion question, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Star Trek. And why is that?
1: I loved the first three Star Wars movies like everybody else. But I think, and God, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this. Why do you ask these questions? <laughs> um, I think Lucas started taking himself too seriously when he did the the next three I agree with that there's a pressure when you uh write something that's as canonical as the the four five and six were in the Star Wars series and I think the pressure got to him and he was trying to, he was consciously trying to make something myth that was just over the top um spirit And he forgot that the key is the characters themselves, not the world. If the characters aren't great, it doesn't matter how great the world is. Um, So uh, Lord of the Rings is probably the best designed world ever. And yet the characters are what most people talk about. So uh, Star Trek, I thought, was more... um, I thought the consistency across the series is, was better. I didn't like some as well as others. The uh, originals, of course, were fabulous. And then I thought uh, Star Trek Enterprise was second best. Game, okay. of, Game of Thrones. Um, no, we weren't talking about Game of Thrones. What was the other one? Uh, it's Firefly. Firefly, right. Um, I never got Firefly. Sorry. I tried. Uh, I enjoyed it. What I saw, and Nathan Fillion was great. Uh, I really do like him. Uh, but yeah, Star Trek. I know that's okay. kind of an answer, but.
0: And because you mentioned Game of Thrones, and we're polytheistic here at the uh, Blasters and Blades podcast, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Potterverse?
1: Oh, Lord of the Rings. I've okay. read. I've read. I've read uh, the entire series. I'm actually not sure anymore. It's at least forty-two times, and right. uh, the the book, the movies, I treat as something entirely different. They're 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 fine, but they're not the the books. The books are um, the greatest. If you if you take them all all as a as a one book, which is how Tolkien intended it to be, as one giant story, uh, it's the greatest novel written in the English language certainly in the 20th century.
0: Okay, I could agree with that. I know the some of this is generational cuz like Potterverse hit, like I remember when people started reading it I was already prepping for my first deployment. So I think sometimes books like that it sort of did it hit when you were at the right age for its designed audience cuz it started as a children's book. I understand yeah. they got darker as time went on, but by then I just never really had any desire to go backwards.
1: And, and as far as Game of Thrones, I, I think you have to look at the books versus um, the, the, the show. The, sh- the first three up seasons of the show were phenomenal. Um, even I could even stretch that up through season six. And then they started trying to wrap it up too early. And, of course, you had the disaster of the last season. Um, but the books are are not my type of fantasy in that uh, they tend to be more in the Robert Jordan uh, type, very long, heavily detailed, every detail, uh, and every sub-detail and every tiny detail. And and really, I prefer uh, faster-paced fantasy. Maybe, Maybe I have a short attention span. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't like the grimdark aspect of it. Like, you just know the minute you like a character, they're dead. And, yeah, um, it does make uh, There are other books that I haven't read by different authors that are the same reason. Like, I read to escape the real world, so I don't mind serious themes. I don't mind serious actions. I get the characters have to die if there are stakes. But uh, there's a line between, man, this is depressing and this is entertainment and there are
1: stakes. And to really be honest with you, there are times, and I'm not saying it happened in Game of Thrones, I'm saying some people, I've heard some people say it though, where it almost becomes that the author is being self-indulgent. And they're all, they're they're like, I'm going to hook my readers on this character and then I'm going to kill him because I can.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard that complaint.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't know that, that, you know, it's true. I don't know that's why Martin did it. I don't know the man. And he obviously probably never heard of me, but, uh, I, I don't, based on the interviews I've seen with him stuff, I don't think that's the case. I think he just wants to tell a good story. But I do think that uh, at sometimes, I also think there's a point at which the pressure builds up for some characters to the point where you don't really know how else to write them. You don't know where else to go with them because the expectations are so great. And uh, so you just go. You know, I'm just gonna kill them off.
0: I've I've done that myself. I've I've written a character. I still get occasional hate mail from the first series I wrote, where she was originally at one point in time like she was a, a child phenom. So she got promoted through the ranks yeah. quickly, just to show that you know these Marines aren't just blubbering idiots and then she was going to be the the romantic interest as she aged, but because I was writing in someone else's universes and timelines had to mash up, that didn't happen. So I ended up with an angsty teenage girl in the middle of a military sci-fi thriller, and I'm like, I have no idea what to do with her. I'm just going to let her sacrifice herself, and she dies because it was easier. So I I get that. It happens. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, I I think, I don't know about you, um, You know, my writing process is I'm a panther, so for me, I don't know where things are going to happen before I start writing them. I have an idea, but only a vague idea. And so um, you, I guess readers who, who don't write um, find it hard to understand that sometimes we write ourselves into a corner and kind of say, you know, I'm not sure this was a good idea. And, and you just kill them off because you really don't know what else to do with them.
0: Yeah. It's I, I don't I outline, but even so I do what I call a floating outline. So it's looser. So like I, I'll have the bullet points like four or five per chapter. This is what's going to happen. But I leave myself enough room to be creative in the moment. Yep. But I'm also not wedded to the outline because if I do a left turn, then I just adjust forward. So it, it still fits Yeah, um, because it it's, tends to be more organic that way. I think.
1: I think um, you're right. Um, I, I, I know people who outline every sentence and, uh, And it works for them, and that's great if it does. I just my brain doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah. So I have um, like when I do my battles, for instance, because this is topic military sci-fi, so it's it's germane. Um, Like, if you if you're not careful, you're going to write every battle like Thermopylae, where they've always got the perfect terrain to have the perfect defense and the perfect victory. Well, Thermopylae was arguably not a victory, but you know, whatever. That's a complicated. Uh, discussion yeah. but so what I do yeah. is I write where it's the battle scenes for instance I just write in the outline battle scene here and then wherever the pieces on the board have moved then I plan the strategy from there and then my mom's pretty good with computers so she'll take this computer program we have to design my maps because if like I said if I design the map they'd fight every battle at the pass right and so yeah. I find that you know things like that keep it more organic and speaking of that with Game of Thrones the funniest thing I saw were when those, those last battles because arguably tactics were crap in that movie, yeah. uh, I don't know because I didn't get that far in before I gave up on the books. But the angry staff officer is a, is a retired army officer who does like reviews of that kind of stuff, and he was going crazy tearing those uh, the battle planning up for that. He's like, "No, why would you do this? Why would you do any of this?"
1: I know, and um, I actually know of a book, and I'm not going to say you know what series or even what publisher, but I know of a book lately uh, that was um, pulled back. Because um, the battle scenes were just terrible and made no sense. And the publisher said, you know, this needs to go back and uh, be redone because I can't publish it as it is now. Uh, I think for me, uh, I have spent so my entire life studying military history. And I've written a lot of military history. Uh, nonfiction. So even though I, I wasn't in the military, I still understand it because I've spent so much time studying battles and, and uh, aspects of battles and, and influences and things, uh, uh, especially in the ancient world, but and World War II. Those two are my two big passions. So many authors, I think never picture what's going on leading up to the battle and the logistics involved and what every man would have to go through to get ready for the battle that day and all the little things that add up to it and if they do they put in too many details where it kind of slows it down so it's a tricky thing to do it really is
0: and so the other thing thing is is, um when you think about about tactics you have you to have consider to that technology. Um, and um, and so if you have, I'll give you an example of if, how it affects tactics. So when I first joined the army in 98, they taught us for the most stable firing position is the is you sort of putting your side profile facing the enemy. You've seen this, the statues of soldiers standing that way. And that made a lot of sense if you don't have body armor because you want a smaller profile, you're harder to hit, and it gives you a very stable platform. You throw in body armor and suddenly your most likely to survive getting hit if they hit you center mass and we changed the entire way we moved on a combat field that's why you see that you know f- sort of side side almost like a waddle but they're walking with their chest forward and their weapon in front of them it's because they're placing their most secure body position in front of the enemy mm-hmm. and that's a perfect example of how as tactic or as technology changes it's going to have to ripple through tactics and so that's one of the things star wars gets a bad rap for with the, the run on the uh, the death star through that canyon is basically that's world war II bomber technology in space with no consideration really of what would have changed when you added all this extra technology. And, and I think and, that's the real yeah. danger Yeah, is you've got to think it forward.
1: You uh, do. And, and that's what I was talking about earlier. I think that uh, uh, Lucas just made those movies thinking this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm just going to say the heck with it. And, you know, and then once they were just this, they were legendary, then he went back and said, "Okay, now I've got to make th- the first first three. So how do I do that and still capture that same flavor? Well, by then they'd become iconic, and you can't capture that flavor because they're iconic. And so you, now you're trying, you're consciously trying to make iconic movies. Um, yeah, I was I- going to mention another piece of technology, and, and this would go switch over into fantasy too. Is if you look back at the uh, first Punic War." Uh, between Carthage and Rome, the Carthaginians had the Mediterranean's largest, best-trained fleet. And the battle, you know, the, the war was fought for control of Sicily. So when we talk about ancient triremes and we talk about training and things like that, it's the not just the construction and design of the ships, but the sealing of the ships, how many banks of oars they had, and how well-trained and how physically fit the oarsmen were. People think that uh, you would take slaves and chain them to the oars and they would do it. That was actually an extremely complicated technical position to, to be in. And you didn't use slaves and you didn't underfeed them because they couldn't, they couldn't perform the way they needed to in battle. So... When the Romans fought them, the Romans had never really had a fleet before. They had to copy the designs of Carthaginian ships, and a few captured Carthaginian shipwrights helped them. But what they did do was they figured out a way to take their prowess on land, which was their heavy infantry, and adapt to the sea. So the Carthaginians and all um, ancient warships, tried to ram you. They had these big brass rams. And the Romans came up with something new. Attached to the front of the ship, they had a big ramp. And as soon as they would get close, they would grapple the Carthaginian ship, and they would drop the ramp, and their Marines would charge over and fight the Carthaginians on their own ship. So... They were using what they and they won the war because of it. They they slaughtered the the um, Carthaginians on the sea, even though the Carthaginians were the people with all the the experience in navies. But then in the second, when they kept trying to do it, the Carthaginians came up with a way to counteract it, so that it was no longer possible. So yeah, oh, yeah. tactics change everything and technology.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things that people forget when they do uh, sci-fi specifically. Is you know, once you're in space or you have those abilities, you have to think instead of like on a plane. You have to think in terms of a sphere, and you, you almost never see people compensate for that. So, yep. but uh, we could go down that rabbit hole forever in a day. Oh,
1: yeah, I get I get off on tangents.
0: No, me too. Me too. But we, we ultimately we come here to talk to you about your book, so we'll, we'll push this forward. All so right. uh, we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast like both the fantastical and the scientific. So, what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Fantasy. Oh, what was the what was the book that you remember reading first?
1: Um, you know, I'm pretty sure that it was um, Beyond the Black River by Robert E. Howard. uh one of his last conan stories i'm not i can't of course i can't be 100 sure now i would have been 12 or 13 at the time somewhere in that range and i'd already gotten addicted to comic books they were my gateway drug (laughs) and uh but i read that story and it was just it, it was written for 13 year old boys by a guy who remained a thirteen-year-old boy his entire life, <laughs> and uh, it, it just—I read it and I thought, "Well, now I like this." And then my mom found it and said, "I can't, couldn't read it anymore." So of course that was it. I had to read all I could get my hands on.
0: <laughs> so, uh, do you still read comic books, or do you? When you transitioned to novels, you stayed
1: there. I stayed there. Uh, comics got. I tell you, they, they lost me because they started really expanding too much. And, uh, uh, and and I'm talking from... I had at one time, my collection, I had Amazing fan. I didn't have Amazing Fantasy 15, I had Spider-Man 1. I had uh, Fantastic Four, not just number one, but number three, which is even harder to find. I had them, all that stuff. and uh, But when you start having six different X-Men series and three different Spider-Man series. It, it just became too much.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, the, All the uh, retro running. running.
1: It, it did. And the space to keep them and, uh, read them. And so then I discovered, uh, uh, after, right after Howard, I discovered Tolkien and that was that. Uh, so, In fact, with Tolkien, at one point, I was so, I'd read it so many times by the age of 17. I went to summer camp one year, my last year going, and I would tell the story of the Lord of the Rings around the campfire every night. Just from memory. So, So so go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to say, so, I was immersed in fantasy before I ever found Roger Zelazny, and Robert Heinlein.
0: Okay, so what is it about speculative fiction that you love?
1: Wow, that's a hard question, you know? I think... I think it's because anything is possible. And it's not... We don't have to rigidly adhere to known laws. We can make up whatever we want. But we have to be good at it. And speculative fiction tends to be a lot more fun than other forms of fiction. Even even when they're trying to be serious, they're fun to read.
0: Okay. So, how did your love of the genre transition into you writing stories in it?
1: Hmm. Probably the same way everybody does. Uh, I was attempting to, uh, I was attempting to write what I, I liked reading. It probably started out as fanfic. I don't ever remember actively writing a Conan story or an Elric story or any of that stuff. But it it likely started with me trying to do that very thing. And uh, when I got to college, I mean, I I don't know if you want me to go into all this now, but uh, when I got to college and majored in creative writing, one of the the things I've always had against creative writing programs is too many teachers try to teach you what to write, not how to write. And mine were especially so now I had one who didn't do that. But the others, I had one tell me, if you write me a fantasy story, uh, I'm going to give you an F. And he didn't care what else I wrote. It couldn't be science fiction or fantasy. And the we had two professors at the University of Memphis. They were doctors in the English department who were both diehard science fiction fantasy fans. One of them helped, no, both of them helped create Mid-South Con or at least inspired it. And they were not allowed to teach creative writing because they didn't want to pollute young minds with that trash. Uh, so I kept trying to do it in new ways while there, but it got kind of beaten out of me. And I was taught that narrative, that plot was secondary to characters, that... The value in writing was in the words themselves and the prose itself, not in the story you were telling. Which is why most of those professors, and to this day, uh, you can read a lot of the reviews on the current professors at many universities. And they all say the same thing. The books are boring and nothing happens because that's what they try to teach you to write because they all want to be William Faulkner, but they don't have the talent.
0: Yeah, so I've had a friend of mine going through a uh, creative writing program and he's making the same complaints. Uh, At this point, though, he's so deep in, he might as well just finish and that's sort of where he's at just to get the paper.
1: And, And I have to say that there's two points about that. I have to say that once you're done, you really do come out with a much better sense of how to write characters and how to create sentences. But you then have to consciously decide but I have no clue how to tell a story and then go back and do it. I've read the stuff I wrote then and right after that was science fiction or fantasy, and it's all quite good in some ways and quite terrible in others because I keep trying to move the, the characters around like a, pieces on a chessboard and it doesn't work. It was only when I forgot that part of what they tried to teach me that I realized how to write stories people wanted to actually read. Um, The other thing is uh, you you said you're still getting that same complaint. And and I've heard the same thing from many, many people. Now, that's not true of all. I think Orson Scott Card could probably teach you how to do it. And I know Kevin J. Anderson uh, has a master's level course that he teaches. So I feel pretty certain those gentlemen and others Brandon Sanderson does too. Okay. Okay. So I don't think they're going to make that mistake, but you have to consciously seek out highly successful authors who are willing to do that. Uh, And unfortunately, most of the writers that are teaching people how to write haven't necessarily seen that success themselves.
0: Okay. Yeah, I can see that. So, many authors let their own real-life experiences influence the stories they tell. So, were there any specific formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller?
1: Yes. Yeah, there was. Um, I was maybe 10 or 11, something like that. And when I was a child, I was, like a lot of people, I was bullied pretty badly. I was the short, fat kid. I've never told anybody this, by the way. And um, and it's no fun being in the fourth or fifth grade and getting not beat up. I wasn't physically, but verbally and mentally abused on a daily basis and all that. And also because I was not an athlete, I was um, I read a lot and uh, I liked reading and uh, I liked playing games. I liked all the nerdy stuff we all do. So when I was 10 or 11, I was standing by the f- water fountain at school, and instead of continuing to be upset about it, I decided, okay, what can I do that will make this stop? And I made a conscious decision that I was going to try to entertain people. That if I could become, uh, not the class clown necessarily, but I would rather have them like having me around because I'm entertaining, then pick on me. And I think that was the moment at which I started the process of rolling, uh, realizing how to tell a story. Uh, the pick, the bullying stopped when I grew eight inches in one summer, and was bigger than everybody who'd been picking on me. That'll but, do it. Yeah, it will. Uh, but. But the desire to, to entertain people and to tell them stories and things like that—that that, I think that's what stuck with me.
0: Okay, I can see that. I uh, definitely, if you grow up as slightly larger than the standard, uh, it, you you either you know do something about it, wallow in it, or learn to to be the funny guy because you know yeah. if you laugh at yourself, they won't laugh at you. Tends to be the answer.
1: Tends tends to be that way, and I think a lot of us probably share that same experience.
0: Uh, my answer, though, is I ended up after I got to the point where I was okay with people laughing at me. I joined found sports that I liked um, that were were more suited towards towards my skill set, and and then it was off to the races. But um, listen, I was
1: a state champion in high school. Oh, what uh, sports on chess.
0: Oh. <laughs> so I, I wrestled in high school and then I okay. played rugby Obviously. in college. So nice.
1: uh, and, nice.
0: and those are tend to be the, the sports where you don't have to have done it all your life. You could walk in as the new guy and they're yep. sort of yeah. used to that. So, you know, they they're willing to teach you. Yeah. And the great the great thing about wrestling is uh, you don't have to learn a hundred million moves. Like you might learn a hundred plays in a football game. You just have to learn two or three, one for standing one for on the mat and, you know, and then do them really well and be able to endure a little bit of pain to get to the point where you can use it. Yep. And if you can do that, you can beat people who are profi- way more proficient than you are.
1: My son, my son wrestled uh, in high school and probably for the same reason. Uh, you know, he, he was like me. He didn't start growing until he was in high school, essentially. And uh, so I, I think that probably had something to do with it. Yeah. Uh, right. I played a lot of basketball in high school um, with my friends because the school we went to, uh, which, by the way, was the same high school Jerry Cornell went to. Really?
0: Did you go to school yeah. with him or did you know
1: him? Oh, no, 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 no. Jerry's Jerry's 20 years older than me. I, oh, didn't, okay. I did not know him, and I did not know we shared the same high school until after he died. Okay. Uh, which is a shame because he did come through Memphis a few times and I met him and got him to sign stuff. And it would have been great to say, Hey Jerry, guess what? Uh, you know, I'm 20 years behind you, but same school. Um, but it was an all boys school and it tended to be very cliquish. Uh, so none of my friends who were all better than most of the basketball players, none of them got to play on the team cause they weren't part of the crowd. So I played with them we had a lot of fun. Uh,
0: yeah. My, uh, my high school wrestling coach always told us, if you can walk out in the middle of a crowded auditorium wearing nothing but a singlet made of spandex, you can do anything. You can rule the world. It's true. <laughs> you have to learn to be okay with yourself at that point.
1: Uh, that is not something I could do.
0: So uh, let's transition uh, away not from... something
1: a- anybody would want me to do. not
0: anymore not for me either uh that not anymore by the way it was about me Uh, but so transitioning from the writing side let's talk about things from a fan angle so have you had any weird or funny interactions with fans since you started writing
1: this is neither i don't think this is not funny or weird but it's it's touching to me it's humbling if that counts definitely okay so i've got a a gentleman named john riotto he won't mind me mentioning his name because John's actually uh, now become a character in the books. And uh, he is not a writer. He he does love to read in science fiction. John has actually read the books so many times and he's so involved in them. He has created an interactive map that has every character and every detail from every book in the universe on the map. And you can go there and click a place and it will tell you what happened there. He's got all the battles located, all the depots, everything. Uh, I I estimate it's probably taking him 100 man hours or more to develop. He established a uh, T-O-N-E, uh for the 7th Cavalry, which is the last brigade. And... I never in my wildest dreams thought anybody would think enough of my work to do something like that. It's just, it's incredible. And and I'll send you a link to the map if you're interested. Uh, Because if if you ever wanted to do it or something like that, I've had so many people. uh, We put it in the front of the books now so that when you're reading the book, if you want to discover, gee, I don't remember that, you can actually go to the map and look it up.
0: Wow. Okay, so we'll have to link that in the show notes. I'll get with you after we finish the interview to get that link. Okay. Because that sounds uh, sounds something you know you should you should have people looking at. He spent the time to make it. We might as well honor it by looking at it.
1: And that's all he wants is uh, to look at it. Uh-huh. He didn't want to be written into the stories. He he's fine with it, but he didn't want to. Uh, but he now has a position in the command staff.
0: I um, I've done that for a universe. I attempted to make a wiki with somebody else for a, a universe. I was a super fan of, and uh, I, the, the wiki was a lot harder to do if you're not really tech savvy, but I can appreciate the amount of time that it takes to do that kind of stuff. Cause I imagine he had to read through several times on the books to catalog stuff and make notes. Cause I think when I was doing it for Tim Taylor's human Legion universe, like I read through each book eight times, taking notes of people and places and chips and yep. it's definitely a labor of love.
1: Yeah. Uh, In fact, Tim Taylor just had a new book come out.
0: He did. I I follow him. So he actually gave me my start writing. Um, I I, I pestered him uh, back before I used my real name. I just went by Iron Mike because, you know, I was infantry and that's a big deal with the infantry on his website. So it was Sergeant Iron Mike. I was really creative for someone who would end up writing books and I would pester him I'm like, you should tell this story because you left this open and finally... He's like Jr. You just need to write this your dang stuff and leave me alone. I need to sleep, <laughs> and, and that's how the story of my first series came along. So that's cool. what I've learned. If you want to ever write, get up writing a book, you tell another author how they should write it, and you'll end up they're like, "Oh, tell me that story then."
1: Yeah, he and I are both write, uh, both have series with uh, Chris Kennedy Publishing. And okay. I, I have it's another series, not the Last Brigade, and uh, uh, Chris has let both of us. Right, in the I think Tim's written in the Four Horsemen, I know I have he has, so, yeah, I thought he had yeah uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, but i I don't know him, but uh but I know his work, and it's excellent
0: he's he's a good guy, so um, he has this weird thing about drinking his beer warm, but we'll we'll fix him eventually. Um, so this is the part, William, where we Alan Webb tells us everything he has written. He's gonna give us the, the highlights reel of his body of work. So can you tell us um what kind of books you've put out into the wild?
1: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what author would say no? Uh so I have a new book out today, uh called The River of Walking Spirits. And it's a spin-off. It's not a spin-off exactly. It's part of the Last Brigade universe, which we're here to talk about, but it's, I call them fantastic stories. So they are, uh, the first one had a, uh, called the Hairy Man, had a Bigfoot. This one has uh, the true story of what really happened to the steamship Sultana in 1865 uh, when it blew up, greatest U.S. maritime disaster. And uh, so that's one aspect of it. It's, it's a creepy type story. I have written, the first series I've written is The Last Brigade, in uh, which Standing the Final Watch is the first book for, involving, uh, would this be a good point to talk about, like the premise?
0: Sure, I was going to ask that next, so rock on. We're okay. here to yeah. talk about The Last Brigade, so he's going to tell us where the universe came from.
1: We'll just get there. Uh, I- I'll mention the others real quick. There, I have a universe called um, uh, Time Wars. And the first book, Jurassic Jail. And I want to point out that I named that book before Jurassic Park came out. Um, I've been working on it since the mid-80s. I do have a fantasy series called Sharp, Steel, and High Adventure. Uh, one of the stories in that won the Daryl Award back in 2018. I have, uh, with Chris Kennedy Publishing, I have the tra- the uh, Hit World series. Hit World is... Um, The tagline is that everything you don't believe is real. It's set in a current-day America, except 9-11 was far more successful than in reality. And in response, uh, the US response wasn't strong enough, so the people demanded a special election, and they elected Charlton Heston. Uh, And that's think John Wick gets James Bond's license to kill, and goes to work for Men in Black. And uh, then there's been some other very short stories and things like that. The Last Brigade, the, the setup for it and the premise is that the only science fiction in it is cryogenics which I think we're probably closer to than most people realize, but being able to freeze people and bring them back, that's the only thing I ask you to believe. And uh, we had this technology back in the mid-90s. It's very expensive. Government kept it secret. It's not that secret. If you're rich enough, you can find out, But, but it's secret. And as people would transition out of the military with... They would have skills, you, for example, have skills that cannot be easily replicated. Even if you haven't used them for a while, you still know what it's like to be in the military. You know how things are supposed to work. It wouldn't take long for you to get back up to speed. So as people get out of the military, they recruit those who don't have a family. They don't have any kids. They don't have a wife or a girlfriend. There's nothing really to hold them here. They're just leaving the military for whatever reason. So they recruit them to go into cryogenic sleep against the day they might be needed again. Because then we have this resource that we can just wake them up, and if you've been a career uh, artillery officer, they don't have to train you in artillery. And the systems might be a little different, but they're not that different. So they're doing this, and the initial intention is to have a battalion. But there are so many people that do this, uh, especially in the wake of uh, uh, the uh, Iraq, Iraq, Afghanistan, those those things, that they it starts to grow larger. And the book begins with uh, my main character being recruited to be the commander of this unit. But he has a family and who just happened to be conveniently killed in the prologue. So he's he's depressed and he there's a reason for him to go into cryogenic sleep and be the commander. Uh, oh I guess I'm, I'm probably, this is a little bit of a spoiler but it's not too much. The problem is that when things do go south, and they do go south, uh, in fact, we're, we're writing the prequel series now. The first book's called Sowing Chaos. Uh, they do go south, but they never get the call. When they're finally awakened by accident, it's 50 years later, and there is no United States of America. There's warlords and slavers. Mexico's been taken over by the cartels. There's a, a radical cult down in Texas, that kind of thing. But there's no no country, so it's their job to try and rebuild it, to resurrect. It.
0: Okay, so before we get too deeply into this um, to this universe, uh, can we take a moment and just appreciate that glorious cover? So, what is the story behind this art? How did you come up with it? Because that's that's pretty pretty sexy looking.
1: Okay, I'm not going to take credit because my uh, uh, my publisher did that. Okay. What, what? So here's the story behind this. It's it's kind of interesting if you want to hear how this all came about and how that cover came about. I would tell us. In when I finished the book in late 2015, I was so old school. I had taken a 20 year hiatus from writing fantasy, uh, and, and I'm sorry, from writing fiction. I've been writing military nonfiction in that time. Uh. The, the result of which came out in 2019 in a book called uh, Killing Hitler's Reich, which is about the battle for Austria in 1945. It took me 13 years and it's 300,000 words.
0: Wow. That's a big one.
1: Yeah, Several I volumes. Know. I take it. No, just one book. Uh, but it, I, I had to translate over 200 sources from German. It, 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 I don't even know how I did it. But anyway, uh, in 2014, I just on a lark started writing this and I finished in, 2015 what became the the first two books and when i finished the first thing i did is i printed out a copy of the first draft so i'd have some idea of what it was going to cost to mail it to agents and publishers because it had been so long since i would tried i didn't realize that if you actually mail them something they will throw it away and when i finally figured that, that out I tried, I, I wanted to get either an agent or a publisher, probably an agent, because I, I still thought that that's the way you were supposed to do things. I didn't know any better at the time. And I was going to send it out and I blogged about my journey to 200 no's. I wasn't going to give up on it until I got to 200 no's. But I also discovered something called Twitter events, which still exist, by the way. The best known one is called Pit. Pit mad which is pitch madness uh i was with one that still exists called pitch to publisher so what this involves is during a particular time a time frame on this particular hashtag which was pit to pub a certain number of publishers would be looking at your tweets to see if they might be interested in your book and if they liked it you could then send them the book according to their submission guidelines with a tagline saying you asked for this on um, twitter so i did that and i participated in one and i got four publishers asking for it one of which asked me if i could eliminate all cursing sex and violence and there was no sex and i told them i said i'm not sure how i could get marines to go gosh they're shooting at us and Without shooting back or having violence, so that kind of went away. I was offered a contract by two days later by a small press, who I paid two hundred fifty dollars for a lawyer to look it over, and he said, "Run," <laughs> uh, which I did. And as it turns out, they went were out of business four months later. But this publisher that called Dingbat—that's the name of the publishing house. Contacted me about three weeks later and the the editor said uh, her name's Gunnar Gray. She's her own writer. She's excellent. She said, look, I'll, I'll publish this, but you really need to send it to Bain. It's, it's it's good. It's at their level and they can do a better job with it. So uh, not having an agent or anything, I didn't. I sent it to them, but it was their slush pile. And I, got, and I knew what that meant. And I got to think about it. I said, you know anybody who's honest enough to tell me this is good enough to send to somebody else, but they'll take it if, the, you know, I, I, I trust them enough that I want to just do business with them. So we made an agreement that if Bain came back and said, hey, we'll take it, uh, that she would turn over the rights and it would be fine. And we proceeded and I showed her the cover that I had done. Now, it's not a terrible cover. I, I look at it now and think, okay, that's not awful. <laughs> Which is surprising because I didn't know what I was doing. But she said, Yeah, okay, it's not bad. Let me see what I can do. And about, I don't know, a week later, she sent me this and I went, Oh, okay, that's a real cover. And so I'm not sure exactly where she pulled all the images from, but it's pretty spectacular.
0: Yeah, I think if we could see the um, so one of the, the issues when when I share these covers is most of what I could find on Google are the thumbnails, and then once you blow them up, there's only so much you can do. But I imagine that that in the full resolution is going to be something to behold.
1: It I can really, already
0: tell just looking
1: when 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 you look at the uh, the actual print copy, and it's just it's glorious we also came up with the uh, logo now we both came up with that and that changes from book to book um it'll be a two for the second book three and so on but which i think fits the cover perfectly and sets the whole thing off and and i've looked at this for so long jr and you know what to me make just makes the whole thing what's that that little splotch of kind of teal green up there near the logo. Okay. It, it, it just contrasts all the other browns and oranges and reds to the point where it just really makes the whole thing come together. It, I don't know. She just did a great job.
0: Interesting. I don't see that splotch because I'm colorblind, but it still looks good to my colorblind self. So well, win-win.
1: Win-win. <laughs> win-win. There we go. Yeah.
0: So what would your 30-second elevator pitch be for this, for this book in the series?
1: All right. Let me get my thought together here. Military veterans are put into cryogenic sleep against the day they might be needed again. But when the time comes, they don't get the call and they're awakened 50 years later and there is no country. It's their job to rebuild it. They're led by a man named Nick Ongriff. Nick Ongreff will kick your butt to resurrect his country. That's it.
0: Okay. So what do you think makes your series special?
1: Well, Special's in the eye of the beholder. My series has a definite point of view. My characters have a definite point of view. Every one of them. I, I very much take time to do a couple of things. The series is, I'm going to approach it from this point. The series has gotten criticisms for on a couple of things. One, that um, strip people who've been in the military, a very few of them, have said, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about, He, you know, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And the first version of this book was so rigidly correct with military and military jargon and everything done exactly as it would have been in the military that only those people would have read it. Um, I've got about a 44% female readership for this series. And the early readership the beta the alpha readers really on that book all said the same thing i can't read it there's just too much of that stuff in it so i've consciously dialed it back a little bit and and gunner helped me do that and i've tried to walk a very fine line of having enough in there that military veterans will recognize that and yet also Having it be fun. For example, I have a special ops team that are recruited from the best of the best, and they all have—they don't even know who the guy next to them's real name. They don't know anything about them other than their code name, and that's all they ever go by. One—one uh, one is called Green Ghost. He's the, the leader of this team, and uh, so there's that. And then others. That's also uh, the thing I think makes it special, though, is that I'm having fun with it. And while, okay, granted, it's not technically correct, the vast majority of veterans l- really enjoy the series because they recognize what I'm trying to do. Uh, it's the same thing that you saw in, say, Captain America, the movie, the first one, where you're you're having fun with it, but you're tr- you're trying to make the uh, create the verisimilitude of, of the military uh, organization being true, but then within that, make it a lot of fun to read. It, the other thing is that um, my main character is a three-star general who's known for being a big fan of Patton, and he's a fighting general. Well, he has a de- definite political point of view. And there are those who have thought, well, uh, you know, that reflects what the series is about. Well, it reflects what he is about. I'm telling it from his viewpoint. But when I get into the viewpoint of others, the, the series has one chief bad guy. And when I'm in wow. his viewpoint, he believes what he's doing. He believes he's doing the right thing. And they conflict because... They're both trying to achieve the same thing, but doing it in different ways. And they, they can't coexist. So I think that's what makes the series special, is I really do take time to develop the characters, to give them each their own personalities, their own viewpoints, and to try and make them as much fun as I possibly can or, or as believable as I possibly can, while maintaining that environment of very fast action, um, and and just having fun with it.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so when you when you, um, mm-hmm. when you, when wrote, you wrote this, this obviously here I'm going to yeah. mute you so we don't echo. Sorry, the muting of the echoing sometimes happens and it makes it hard to think, uh, but that's my issue, not yours. So you wrote this series, in a, you know. it sounds like you put a lot of thought when you were writing it. Uh, you clearly started writing it before even the TV movie tropes website was a thing. So, but we do like, you know, tropes are, are exist because they're what readers like. So what tropes do you think that uh, standing the final watch hits the best? And now
1: let me unmute you. sorry about that little
0: technical difficulty
1: oh i I have eight barking dogs you know um mike's echoing and technical difficulties are the story of my life (laughs) um there are people who think i am a technical difficulty oh man tropes military sf tropes i think as you look through most military sci-fi Most of the really good ones. One of the traits that comes through, and I'm not sure it's even recognized as a trope, is the power of the individual to change the world around them. I think you're going to see it in um, the Honor Harrington series from David Weber. Uh, David Drake writes Hammer Slammers. There's a reason that Hammer is in the title. Uh, all of these characters exist within a universe of other very special characters, but it's the personality of the main character that drives everything forward. And I'm not so sure you, you see that in... I, I do think you see that as a trope in really, really good fantasy. Fantasy. It's very hard to do with more than one character, but you can. But when you center everything around one character, I think that would be the trope that I hit the most. Because if my series has anything, it's about the power of the individual to overcome obstacles. And to even do the impossible at times. As long as you're good at making it believable.
0: Okay, and um, clearly this is military sci-fi because we sort of hit on that. But does it fit in the other of the genres or subgenres? Because it does have a definite post-apoc vibe to just what you said.
1: It's definitely post-apoc. Um, it, one of the things I like most about it is the only other series out there that I can think of offhand, and and there's as you know there's a lot of them, so I'm not really a hundred percent certain. But William Deetz writes a series. Except his is based on comets hitting the Earth, and it's set in current times. I don't really know of a lot of others out there that share what I've got, which is that the world basically just destroys itself, as opposed to um, as, as opposed to some cataclysm as a comet or Something along those lines. I have taken, in this series, the um, a nuclear, and this is not a, a surprise to anybody, it's it's a spoiler only if you haven't read Sowing Chaos, which is the prequel. But even in this book, we allude to the fact that a nuclear uh, terrorist attack on the U.S. triggers the uh, New Madrid fall, which happens to be very near me, so I'm constantly aware of it. Um, This creates a giant uh, tidal wave effect down the Mississippi River, which wipes out every bridge and city south of St. Louis and makes all the bridges to the north and and in a huge surrounding area uh, suspect, disrupting trade and and those type of things. The world then falls into chaos, and there's a long period of collapse, um, which... Again, that's what happens, and that's where the post-apocalyptic comes about, is that there really is an apocalypse, but it's man-made. Uh, it's not environmental. It's not a comet or anything like that. It's not sunspots. It's all based on what men did to themselves, um, which is kind of scary, actually. And uh, I, I want to point out that the prequel, Sowing Chaos, was written by uh, John Babb. I, I'm a co-writer. Uh, because nothing goes out that i haven't read every sentence and every word but john babb is a retired uh, rear admiral from the health service and every single thing that he puts in there are um, things that he it was his career to train to try and counteract all the terrorism that's in there it's a very scary book
0: okay Okay. so you've you've told told us us uh, you told us a little bit about the main character, but is there were there multiple main characters, or could you elaborate just a little bit more about what makes your main character special?
1: Yeah, sure. So Nick Ongriff is a combination of a couple of people. He's George Patton. He's a little bit of um, well, I'm trying to think of a really n- another good example. He's he's part George Patton. He's definitely part uh, Sergeant Fury old enough to remember Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Not Nick Fury of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, That, they made uh, Sergeant Fury into Nick Fury, and then he somehow became black uh, in the comics and in the TV series, Uh, which was, as I remember, they did it, and I thought, wow, that was really, that was brilliant. (laughs) But anyway, Sergeant Fury uh, led the fight, and uh, he was always in the thick of the action and everything. And that's kind of how Nick is. He's 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 also a little bit Storm and Norman, uh, Shortstop. And so that's how he came about. I wanted that character who could do anything. He uh, his trope is that he he like Patton. He has two pistols that he wears. Um, I decided to pick to just be if we're going to do this and we're going to have fun. Let's really be ostentatious. So he uses fifty caliber Desert Eagles. <laughs> yeah, I know. and of course it's the worst possible gun you could possibly imagine if you wanted to lug around something for combat. But and he wears them in twin shoulder holsters. So you know he's got all this weight dragging on his shoulders all the time. Uh, but he happens to be in that one tenth of one percent of the people who can uh, use one one handed. And his wrist is strong enough, and he's such a good shot that he can do it effectively. Now, I, I realized on the front end that this is uh, not something that a, a normal human being would do. You're not going to go charging off into battle carrying, you know, 50 caliber Desert Eagles. For one thing, they jam a lot. Um, and you'd have to use the right powder and, and all that. I do have him lo- loading his own rounds. But he's so over the top in a lot of ways. He, he's not. He's a very thoughtful guy. He's a big Lord of the Rings fan. He's done a lot of reading. Um, he, he's a very thoughtful guy. But he's also very action-oriented. So his best friend is what I would call his... He certainly is equal, so he's not a sidekick and he really deserves more time than he gets his name is norm fleming he's a he's another general and norm fleming is based on and if anybody reads the books if you want to hear his voice in my head um he's based on an actor named dennis haisberg as far as his physique and his speech and all that dennis haisberg did not endorse this and i'm not saying that he he is norm fleming but i did picture him as far as his demeanor and uh, his voice and things like that. He's a great actor. Um, a lot of people don't aren't familiar with him, but if I tell you he's the Allstate man, everybody goes, oh, him.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, and Norm is the guy who keeps Nick grounded. He's the one who has the ability to, because Nick's nickname is Nick the A, and I never say what that means, but I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, He he does not tolerate willful incompetence. If you're not good at your job, he'll change your job. But maybe you just got stuck in the wrong place. But if you are willfully incompetent or you are slacking off, then you're going to get it. Um, Norm's the only one who can talk to him like an equal and does. And whenever he goes off on a tangent, Norm's the guy who goes, who comes back to him, and uh, keeps him keeps him level. And and Norm's actually based on a real historical uh, type of figure. Uh, are you a big Roman history fan, Jr.? I am. I am. Okay, so do you you know what a Roman triumph was for a successful general? I do. I do. And you know. You would then know that in the chariot, along with the general who is painted up, you know, painted face red as the god uh, Jupiter, uh, Jupiter Optimus Maximus. Uh, that there's a slave standing there, whispering in his ear, "Remember, thou art mortal." So that the generals never let it go to their heads they really are gods. You know, they're being treated as a god for that one day. For that one day they're being deified. But but don't get the, the idea you really are a god. And that's kind of what norm started out being for Nick is, you know, yeah, okay, the world loves you and you do all this great stuff. But let's remember, you know, uh I've seen you drunk and I've seen you, you know, throwing up and stuff like that. So don't get ahead of yourself here. Um, the character that most people really, that most females like, is um, her name is Nikki. She is Green Ghost's twin sister. But her uh, name that she goes by and will hurt you if you don't call her is, and I hope this isn't a a bad word, uh, Nipple. <laughs> And she does it because she knows it will shock everybody. And that's what she wants to do. She is extremely athletic. The whole... Both um, Green Ghost and his twin sister have um, very, very, very good reflexes. They are extremely uh, fast with uh, hand-eye coordination. And uh, while she was never in the military or anything, she um wound up in a lot of trouble in a story that I haven't yet told uh because she killed too many people and uh bad people but anyway she's she's pretty much psychotic and stays that way and there's reasons as the series goes on you begin to discover why she is the way she is um but she's another one and that a uh, character I really like. And then I'll talk about the bad guy. I and mean, then because I could talk about them all. The bad guy's named Tom Steeple. And he is a general in he's Nick Ongraf superior. He's the man who talks him into joining Operation Overtime, which is what this is called, um, as the commander. He is not a man to be trusted. He is not a man. He is someone who will tell you whatever you need to hear. He's the chief of the joint. He's uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He got his position because he is completely and politically malleable. Um, He is definitely in 100% a political general, of which we have some. And I'm not sure they're Tom Steeple types, but we definitely have some. And so, as the series progresses, he shows up again, and I don't really want to get into too much about it, but um, he and Nick Ongreph were never going to get along, and his choice he picked Nick because Nick was the best um, general out there to command such a unit, but he also didn't listen to those who said he's really not going to be a when it comes down to it this is not going to be a choice that you're going to be happy with and he ignored all those and he did it anyway and from his standpoint it didn't work out particularly well
0: okay okay so the um characters you know as authors we tend to do horrible things to them um so if you met your characters in a dark alley and they knew who you were and what you had done to them as the creator. How do you see that playing out? Do you think you'd do okay?
1: Yeah. I think Nick would hand me a cigar and uh, walk me into a corner and and say, okay, let's get a couple of things straight. (laughs) Uh, But he wouldn't hit me. I think he'd be okay with me. Um, I think Tom steeple would try to kick me in the shin And, uh, I think Nikki Bauer would try to kill me, uh, in her favorite way, which I'm not going to say on the air, uh, but it's not fun. It involves a metal pipe cleaner. Uh, and I think Green Ghost would be trying to stop her because that's who he is. Um, so it depends. I think I'd do okay though. I think Norm would be there, uh, Kind of going, you know. I really need my own book, and uh, I actually have someone who uh, picked out who would be great at writing his book. But he's active duty military, and I don't. They've already nixed him writing in the universe once. I don't think they'd let him write it in it right now either.
0: That can be a pain. So one of the things we like to do here at the Blasters and Blades podcast is to give the listeners and viewers a a look at how the sausage was made. So were there any cool scenes or ideas that you had to cut from the final book that you thought were just kind of cool and you'd like to use someday?
1: Yes, but I've already used them. Here's what I did. I had no idea anybody was going to buy this book. Uh, and, And frankly, I thought if I ever sold 50 copies, I would be... Uh, really, really doing well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm like everybody, Jr. When they first publish a book, my fam, my my family will buy it, and my some of my friends will buy it, but they're not going to tell me in case they hate it, and so I'm not bugging them every five minutes. So, what you think? what you think? And uh, so when I went through it, there were some scenes that the publisher said, "Well, you know." they're good scenes. There's nothing wrong with them, but they really slow it down. I really think we should take them out. And so when I finished this book, it was about 93,000 words and it was published at 83,000. Now, some of that was let's take out this dialogue. Let's take this out. And then some of it was scenes that, uh, I said, yeah, these are slowing it down. I got to take them out. So what we did is, uh, uh, we sold about 56 copies pre-order, which was more than I ever thought we'd sell. Period. But then when it hit, the book was almost an instant success, and it it was just organic because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, I do think I ran a couple of ads on some of the, uh, you know, the sites where you can they'll send it out to their their mailing list and stuff. But um, so about three months later, she said, "Okay, so when can I have the next book?" And I said, "Well, I'll tell you what, I've got, is, uh, um, I've got these three chapters that we didn't include, and then I've got an idea for a short story." So I wrote a short story introducing Nikki Bauer and her brother Nick, uh, who became Green Ghost. And I'm really not giving that away because it's in the story. And so um, it's called the Ghost of Voodoo Village. And Voodoo Village is a real place in the Memphis area. It's still there. And you can look it up online and, and find pictures of it. Uh, and it was founded by a real gentleman who was a voodoo uh, priest. And back when I was growing up, it was a rite of passage to try and drive down there in the middle of the night because it's, it's in a an isolated area of town and there were all kinds of stories about getting your car surrounded and people throwing bricks at you and shooting at you and stuff none of which ever happened uh but but it sounded great to us you know teenagers out in the suburbs so uh i I wrote a story about that very thing and um to introduce them and we put that story at at the beginning and we uh uh then we put some the three chapters in Missed and published them. I think they're chapter seven point five, which obviously between seven and eight things like that. And uh, I've sold a lot of copies of that, and I don't think everybody's read it. But as it turned out, we're probably going to weave those back into a later edition. One of one of them has become an actual crucial plot point for moving forward one of those chapters. So yeah, you know there was there was that. Um I've done that. I have I have got other parts of other books I wrote in the past that I have not yet used. But on this one I took things out and then when the book was successful I put them out in their own little little volume. Okay. All right.
0: Sorry about that dear listener that there's a little bit of a lag cuz I'm pausing uh, muting him when I ask questions so that way we don't have that that weird echo but finally what can you tell us about the the larger universe um, that you haven't really covered is if there is anything we know that in mini series the worlds where the story is told is as much a character as the protagonist so could you give us a hint of what's happening in this post apocalyptic world the the characters find themselves in
1: yeah uh so wh- the world collapsed as I, I've already explained how that all happened um there were wars all over the world the chinese uh wound up invading california but then they had their own civil war they were at war with india um and those people got stranded here so you've got a presence in california you've got a lot of slavers we're not really sure at this point about the larger world one there was one segment in Australia near Perth uh, with an actual gentleman who's a fan of the series and he helped me write um, the story kind of goes through there and then that's all there is so we don't really know that much Uh, there is a story in the new anthology about what happens in Panama when the Chinese try to grab Panama and there are two books, here's what's coming though, there are two books already written that take place east of the Mississippi by John Babb who wrote So in Chaos uh, that are going to take place right after book six, kind of halfway through book six they're going to pick up, and those are already written in the can, I just now have to write book six we're doing the prequel series that's going to explain exactly what happened with the collapse who came out of it uh, introducing some bad guys who have not yet showed up because the cryogenic technology is available to everybody. Uh, it Well, it's, a, it's not known by very many people, but it's available to those who can afford it. Um, so a lot of the 1% might have taken advantage of it. And the world at large is going to grow as more people want to read more stories about various aspects of it we just came out with an anthology 20 days ago gosh it hadn't been three weeks and uh it has sold a lot of copies last time i looked it was still in the top eleven thousand in the paid store uh we did have a pre-order um which as you probably know waters down the ranking a little bit when you release a book um but it has proven so popular and I've gotten so many comments. And one of the fascinating things about this Jr., is that there's 10 authors in the, the book, one of which is me. But I have had people write me about every single story in the book and say, this is my favorite story. Would you please have that author write more about these characters? And... Um, I've never, I've, I've never heard of that in an anthology where every single story has somebody in it. I mean, it has a story. Every single story gets somebody saying, "This is my favorite. I'd like to read more." So we're actually going to do a sequel anthology, picking up with those same characters, uh, strictly because of demand. So yeah, this is going to be a a big thing coming. We've got a prequel uh, series coming way before this. Um, but in the same universe. So yeah, it's it's, it's becoming a big deal, and and I, man, I got to tell you what, I did not see this coming. But if you give my imagination free reign, it's it's going to take advantage. <laughs>
0: All right, so this is clearly, Standing the Final Watch is clearly part of a series. I know because you've told us, we've talked about it, and I checked on Amazon, and Bezos would never steer us wrong. There are currently five books out in this series, um, but what do you think is coming next, uh, besides the anthology we were just talking about?
1: Okay, so next is going to be uh, another prequel um, called, uh, tentatively called uh, Releasing Chaos by John Babb then I will have a simultaneous prequel called The Chaos Road. Um, But in the main series, coming next will be Standing Among the Tombstones, which is book six. Yes, to anyone listening, I have begun it. Uh, I do have my version of some outlining done. Once that's done, we can then release John's two books taking place elsewhere um, in that same time frame part of the universe. And book seven, I don't know if I'll have it out this year or not, but it is definitely coming soon. I don't see an end to this for quite a while because, um, quite frankly, people don't want it to end. And the only bad reviews I've gotten lately on the later books are those who thought uh, somebody gave me a bad review because they thought book five was the end. They said they didn't (laughs) want it to end. So I hope when book six comes out, they go back and change that.
0: Okay, so we know that every um, good literary universe has its own internally consistent rules of science and technology. So, what sort of tech can we expect from this this post apocalyptic military sci fi world?
1: The tech you're going to see, I'm not going to make up. I'm not going to make up anything out of whole cloth. Uh, other and even cryogenics. Um, it's my understanding the Marines are actually battlefield testing it. Um, but you will see me taking liberties with existing technology. For example, did you know that DARPA has developed something called an exacto round? No. Exacto rounds are homing rounds. Okay. That doesn't surprise me. And they, they exist. Now I have taken that and a little Liberty and introduced it into tank rounds. So There aren't very many of them because it was a limited run and uh, the world went to hell in 2025, which is when um, uh, everything pretty much came to an end. But uh, as far as introducing new things into Operation Overtime, by the way, I don't think I ever told you. Operation Overtime is actually uh, in a mountain in Arizona. It's a a base that you can't find unless you know it's there. And uh, it's very much like the Nazi base in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's this mega place inside this mountain. Um, and so in there is, is all kinds of stuff. And I am taking liberties. Uh, there's uh hovercraft exist in a form that they don't currently exist. That, uh with um, in today's world, we have hovercraft that will go much higher in the air than what you may be thinking about as far as, uh, Naval hovercraft. We have land hovercraft. But I have taken it to a slightly different level. Not where it's not possible, just kind of pushing the bounds. We will be seeing uh, at some point some, well, I mean, I'm going to, We've. I've already introduced Area 51, so you can imagine where that's going. But not aliens. Um, we're going to be going into possible tech that we don't know about yet and things that may have been developed behind the scenes. That kind of thing. Uh, I'm not going to stretch tech into things. You know, we're not going to have fusion reactors or anything. Not in this series.
0: Okay, so of all of the tech that you have created for your universe, what specific tech, you know, or or the futurized version of that tech would you like to have for your daily use?
1: (laughs) I'd like to say exacto rounds, but... Uh, I would like to have. I'd like to have the. Um, would I like to have? The Good question. And and the reason I'm I'm hesitating so much is because there's really so little tech that we don't already have. Uh, probably the hovercraft.
0: Yeah, I could see abusing that because you know traffic would no longer be your concern.
1: Yeah. No concern there. Uh, If you want to walk across, you know, if you've got a lot of land or something, you want to walk from or you want to go get the mail, uh, you know, you could just hop on, and zip over there without having to walk up and down or things like that. Um, We would probably all die at age of 50 because we'd be uh, we'd have a body mass index of, you know, 88. But (laughs) but but it would certainly be nice to have. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned that you don't have aliens, but because this is the one of the favorite questions from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans, we left it in and we asked all of our authors because it's applicable to fantasy creatures. So when you create these aliens, which you, know, you mentioned that you do in other universes, how do you go about creating them? Do you let nature inspire you or do you just make them up out of whole cloth?
1: Well, there's a couple of ways. I have aliens in, in two different series. Uh, Hit World has aliens. And in that one, what actually inspired me for for an alien in uh, was a Tarzan movie. In that, oh, if you, if, yeah, if you look at the cover of the first book in the Hit World series called The Trash Man, and uh, it has a giant orange rhinoceros on the cover. And one of the scenes that I because st- I grew up in the day of watching the old black and white Tarzan movies on Saturday afternoons. Um, we didn't have cable or any of that stuff. Uh, We did have television. Yes, we did have electricity. But um, there was a scene where, and they reused it about five times in five different movies, where this rhinoceros would attack Cheetah uh, or Cheetah's mother. And um, it would charge right at the camera. And for some reason, that really made an impression on me as a kid. So I decided to have a, a, in the trash man, we have an interdimensional traveling, sentient. They're sentient beings. They're called Uh Sentient, orange, rhinoceros. They're about the size of a locomotive. But they like earth food. But they're not herbivorous. They're carnivorous. So in earth food, they mean humans. So they like to pop out of a different dimension, eat somebody, and go back. So that one came from nature. And I guess my other one that I would say is in uh, my four horseman universe book uh, high mountain hunters there is something called a Sarpacara and it's Sarpakara is the Nepalese uh, contraction of the Nepalese words for uh, snake and uh, I think dragon or fire and it's essentially a flying snake that breathes fire Um not not really a dragon so much just and and to breathe fire it has to eat a certain uh certain plant so um i i I guess my aliens are nature inspired because the book i'm writing now is called the spider and it's about someone i don't know if they're an alien or not but obviously that would be uh nature inspired so yeah i think i think nature
0: Okay, so this interview is clearly winding down. Uh, we've been at it for a little bit, and it's been super enjoyable, so we'll definitely be inviting you back whenever it's uh, it's appropriate. But before we wrap this up, um, can, is there anything about standing the final watch that we didn't ask that you want to tell us before we move on?
1: I want to give a shout-out before we go, okay? And I want to give a shout-out. Uh, the book has a prologue, and The prologue, as I originally wrote it, was good, and it's essentially what's in the book now, but I posted it to a site that unfortunately no longer exists, where other readers would read it, your stuff, and and comment on it, tell you ways to improve it, and I did that, and a lady who writes under the name uh, Andrea Roche, R-O-C-H-E, has a book out, excellent book, she, looked, she told me that it wasn't gory enough, that it needed to make the reader cry in its tragedy. And I kind of thought, it's not gory enough? Really? <laughs> um, I mean, you can look at the first page and somebody dies on page one. By the way, that's my advice to new writers. If you can't think of how to start a book, kill somebody on page one.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, and and she was and she was absolutely 100 percent correct. So, yeah, it uh, everything in the book has a, a real uh, angst, to, uh, not angst because angst isn't fun. Everything in the book has a meaning. And I really do enjoy putting Easter eggs in there that may not come to fruition for a while, but they're there. And I really do enjoy that kind of thing. And so as you read it, pay attention to every single little thing because it's there's none of it in there for just as filler. It, it all has a meaning, and it will all come to pass in the series at some point. And if I didn't intend to originally, I will go back and mine it to make sure that it does anyway. Okay. okay. And so, on,
0: let me do that. Um. So one of the things that the impetus for this uh, this interview that we talked about um, in the introduction was that this was going to be included in the story bundle, which will have dropped when you were listening to this one, dear leader or listener. Um, so, William, can you tell us for people that might not be familiar with story bundle what it is?
1: Yeah, sure. So you're going to have uh, the opportunity to buy some truly remarkable books from some truly remarkable authors. When I heard J.R. Hanley was going to be involved, I said, oh, my God, okay, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> Flattery gets you everywhere. Um, and, uh, and that's so that you'll have me back on again. Um, what Story Bundle does is you, you pay uh, one price and you're going to get a, a whole lot of really great books. And this particular Story Bundle, is one that is coming from a group of remarkable writers uh sometimes in story bundles there's some headliners and then there's some that are not quite i'm the not quite in this one and and i've done okay uh so that kind of tells you that if i'm the bottom of the barrel for this story uh story bundle the rest of the guys are really really good
0: okay Um, so it will be launched on the May 19th and run through June 10th. Uh, it's one of those things where you can sort of set the price. They, they affiliate with charity. So you can determine, you know, what percentage goes to the author, what percentage goes to charity. You can pay the minimum and get all the books you can pay at a higher price and, you know, support your authors in the way you would like. But even if you pay the minimum, uh, you'll still get all these books cheaper than if you bought them all or even half of them individually. Um, But since this is wrapping it up uh, for this interview, he will be back. It has been determined. Uh, William, can you tell the listeners and the uh, viewers how they can find you on the interwebs?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, You can find me. My website is www.thelastbrigade.com. Brand new website, just completely redone by somebody that knows what they're doing, not me. Um, you can find me on Facebook at the worlds of William Allen webb on Twitter at when you, you know, Twitter, that's always confusing. Twitter at, at the, um, let me start over on that one at join the brigade one. You wouldn't have thought that would be that hard. Uh, and on Patreon at William Allen webb. Patreon, I do release things that I don't release anywhere else. As you probably know, JR, uh talking about things on social media these days has become problematic.
0: That's and it.
1: so behind the paywall, even though it's a very, very minimum amount behind that paywall, then you can do things that uh, you probably can't do and, and publish things and talk about stuff that you can't do on open social media.
0: Absolutely. And uh, you can find us dear listener on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech and tech blades anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech and tech blades. You can follow us on Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We promise we answer it. We even look at it at least once a year. We promise we have a, Facebook group. It's facebook.com backslash Blasters and Blades podcast, where we like to hang out and talk. And at some point in time, we'll do some uh, live streams just for, for the Facebook, maybe with some uh, some ask me anything type deals. Um, it's something Doc definitely wants to, to look into. You can support the show over at anchor.fm with a monthly subscription type services for five, ten, or whatever dollars. Um, if you so desire, or you could do a one-time um, donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash author Jr Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it's for the podcast and I'll make sure we keep Nick Garber and Doc Seska lubricated and intoxicated and I'll be their sober, sober podcast driver and, and we'll rock on. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time, where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.